There's hardly any promise greater than that, is there? That Christ is ours forevermore? That hope is sure. Fear is gone and hope is sure. If you would take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, It is page 978 on the Bibles in the pews, if you need to use those. Page 978 on the Bibles in the pews, Ephesians chapter 4. Today we continue our look at Ephesians 4 to 6. Paul begins Ephesians 4 by calling these Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, a call that is meant for us as well. And this morning, really, if you, ha- if you weren't here these last couple of weeks, that phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, that is really the thesis statement for the entire second half of the letter to the Ephesians. Everything can be summed up is what Paul is saying as walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And today we're going to see what that worthy walk looks like in the church family. All right? Now, we're going to read from verse 17 all the way to chapter 5, verse 2, but our concentration will be in the last paragraph of chapter 4. So, beginning at verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4, this is what the Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul. Now, this I say to you and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin." Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, Your Word is 
a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray today that by Your Spirit You will help us see the light of Your truth, that we will hear it and understand it, and that You will give us grace to believe it and to obey it, that we might walk in love as Christ loved us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Those who encounter the power of Jesus Christ have their lives transformed. One of the most striking stories in the gospel that illustrates this is in Mark chapter 5, and Jesus' encounter with a man who is both oppressed and possessed by demons, a legion of demons. He is described as being a madman, restless, uncontrollable, a danger to himself and to others. And the power of Jesus Christ comes and sets him free from that demonic power. And when that happens, word spreads, as you might think. I mean, word would spread if that kind of thing happened. And people come out from the city to see what, uh, what exactly is going on. They know about the guy. They know about him living among the tombs. They know about how he cuts himself and screams and cries. They can hear him as they're trying to go to sleep each night. So they're wanting to go out and see what in the world is going on. And what they find when they get there is a transformed man. So that verse 15 of Mark 5 says, They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. He was restless, but now he's sitting. He was naked, now he is clothed. He was out of his mind. And now he's in his right mind. He cried and screamed and cut himself in anguish, and now he's full of joy. He wants to stay with Jesus, but Jesus sends him home, and he goes home in joy and, and tells his whole hometown what Jesus had done for him. The old was gone. The new had come. And actually, if you're a Christian this morning, that's how the Bible describes you. That's your story. You see, becoming a Christian isn't simply a matter of adding a religious routine to your life. It's not a matter of merely affirming certain information. Becoming a Christian is to experience transformation. Paul says this of the Christian, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he describes this kind of thing earlier in the book of Ephesians, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive with Christ. And because of that, we live differently. Can you imagine that demon-possessed man? Do you ever think he's going to go pitch his tent among the tombs again? Do you ever think he's just going to scream in anguish and cut himself again? Do you imagine he's going to isolate himself from society again? Do you imagine he won't be controllable again? No. He's changed forever. And that's what Jesus does. He brings transformation. And so, just as we might imagine that he would live differently, we are told that we must live differently in our personal lives and in our relationships. 
And here in our text, Paul calls us to live transformed lives in the church. Live transformed lives in the church. The first and main thing that I want you to see as we look at this text, and this is where we will spend the bulk of our time, are the marks of transformed living. The marks of transformed living. Now, in the paragraph just before this, in verses 17 to 24, Paul makes it very clear that we must live transformed lives in general. Look at verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why? Well, verse 20. Verse, verse, yeah, verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the gospel you heard. That is not the effect of the power of the gospel that saves that you actually heard about. Truth is, verse 24, you put off the old self with all its corruption, and you're renewed in your mind, verse 23. In verse 24, you put on the new self. You've been created in a different likeness. You've been created, chapter 2, verse 10, in Christ Jesus. We are new creations. And so he's basically saying, stop dabbling in the old life. Stop walking the old path. And live the new life you've been given in Christ. Live a transformed life. So in the paragraph that we're specifically looking at, the the call for transformed lives will continue next week and the week after and the week after. However, here in this paragraph, Paul calls us to live out this transformation in the church, and he mentions five marks of transformed living in the church. The first mark is honesty. Honesty. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Verse 25, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, if you remember last week, very encouraging uh, time in the Word with Kevin preaching to us, Um, but verse 15 tells us to speak the truth to one another, but there it's speaking doctrinal truth to one another. It's so that we will grow up spiritually, so that we will be strengthened, so we won't be deceived by false doctrine. Here, he's not saying the same thing. He's saying, be truth-tellers and not lie-tellers. This is a more general command here, that all of our conversation should be marked by honesty. Why? Well, the end of verse 25 tells us, doesn't it? For we are members one of another. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, now you stop lying because I told you, because I said so, right? He doesn't give, you know, your parents' most famous answer to every reason why you had to do one thing or not do another. Because I said so. He didn't say that. He also doesn't even say because God said so. I mean, couldn't he have just said because the Ten Commandments say so? Of course he could. That's a good enough reason. But he doesn't. He points to their fellowship in the church. He said, don't lie to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. We, brothers and sisters, we belong to one another. We are bound to one another. And lying lips are like a chainsaw that rips relationships apart. Now, some of us know this from our own personal lives, our earthly relationships, whether it's in our lies between siblings or lies between children and parents or lies between friends that cause great pain and do great damage and can rip things apart. And so Paul looks at this church and he says, don't do it. Don't deceive. 
Don't mislead. Don't misrepresent yourself. Now, there are a number of ways that we might actually be dishonest, but one of the places that we may do it, and I don't know that it'll be a surprise to you, well, two places really, is when it comes to our sin and when it comes to our suffering. In these cases, we may avoid the truth or shade it in a particular way or just flat out lie if we're struggling with sin or if we're doubting God in the midst of our suffering because we don't want anyone to know. We want to look good. I want you to think that I'm quite strong. Yes, I may be carrying the entire weight of the world, but I want you to think that I'm Atlas and I will not be crushed underneath it. And friends, it's a lie. Because when the lights go off and I lay my head on my pillow, I'm crushed by it. I'm doubting God. I need someone. I, I need the fellowship of the church. Listen, when we do these kinds of things, uh, our enemy, the devil, absolutely loves it. Because when we are trapped in sin, when we are trapped in doubt, and we are dishonest, and we will tell no one anything, we are more likely to stay there, and we are more likely to spiral downward. Friend, if that is where you're at today, put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Now, what this does not mean is that we need to tell everything to everyone at all times, but what it does mean is that we really need, we need to really be known by a circle of people for our own good and for the good of the church. Do you think it really does the church good if we all just are secretly sinning and we come together and we pretend like we have no sin? I mean, didn't John say something about that in his letter? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And actually, you make God out to be a liar too. Why would Paul write something like that the, the, the sufferings of this life are not worth to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Why does he have to write that? Because we tend to believe that the sufferings of this life outweigh the glory that is to be revealed. That's why he has to say it. Honesty. Secondly, a mark of transformed living is righteous anger. Righteous anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, that seems like an odd characteristic for a church, doesn't it? You know, there are these church signs that you drive past, and it's the name of the church, and a little, you know, like six or seven word line that's trying to tell you a little something about the church, right? You know, uh, 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 I'm just making these up. I'm sure that there are churches that, you know, uh, uh, transform church, where Jesus transforms people, right? Um, Grace Church, where we love the Bible, right? I mean, these kinds of things. Gray Road Baptist Church, where we prize righteous anger. I mean, nobody would put that on a church sign. Because we tend to automatically think about anger as a bad thing, right? And really, that's not a bad instinct because most of our anger is sinful. 
And yet there is righteous anger, anger that imitates God's anger, anger about sin and injustice and evil. So long as these things exist in our lives and in the world and in churches, we ought to be angry because God is. After all, Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, we are to be imitators of God. But our anger must imitate God's anger in that we be angry and not sin. In Mark chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ is angry, and this is how Mark records it. Listen to this. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Righteous anger comes with grief because God is not being honored. And if you want a quick way to understand the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, righteous anger is concerned for God's glory, God's honor, God's reputation, that God be obeyed, that God be magnified. Unrighteous anger centers on me. It is concerned that I be honored, I be respected, I get what I want out of this situation. Anytime the motive of your heart centers on you, you can just about guarantee it's sinful. And we are to be angry and not sin. So in response to sin, injustice, evil within the church, we are to act. We are to deal with the sin. And he says to do it quickly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is just an idiom for not letting it go. Why would we need to do that? Well, I can tell you one reason. Because righteous anger tends to morph into sinful anger if it's not dealt with, if the real issue is not dealt with. It will become bitterness. It will become slander. It will become clamoring. It will become malice. It will be like that wonderful, glorious piece of fruit that you put on your kitchen counter, this bright, shiny apple. There it is. It's so great. I'll eventually eat it, right? I mean, you've resolved to eat healthier. So there's my apple. I'm going to eat it. And day after day after day after day goes by, and you never, ever eat it. And then on day 24... When you finally get around to the apple you were going to eat, you cut it, and it doesn't really cut, it just mushes. That's what righteous anger can do if you don't deal with the actual issue, that which provoked the anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we can't let sin go. We have to deal with it. Churches need to deal with sin. This is one reason why we are committed, when necessary, to practicing church discipline. Because churches that do not deal with sin do not honor Christ. You cannot ignore sin and honor Jesus at the same moment. And so we need to be a church that walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And that means where God would be angry and act, we have righteous anger mixed with grief and are ready to act. Honesty, righteous anger, third, generosity. Transformed men and women are givers, not takers. Now, I had that phrase in my mind, and then yesterday, Susan and her brother and I went into a coffee shop in Mooresville called Brandon Shorts. And we ordered a couple of coffees and a couple of muffins, and 
I'm not going to give a commercial, but if you like baked goods, you'll like this place. So anyway, so we got a couple of muffins and we got a couple of coffees, and we go to pay, and Debbie, one of the owners, says, oh, it's taken care of. Uh, What? And they explain that there was a woman in the community, and it was her birthday that day, and she decided for her birthday she was going to pay the tab for everybody who comes into Brandon Shorts that day. So we ordered more pie. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And this is what Debbie said. She's a giver, not a taker. Christians are givers, not takers. Don't take money, take power, take credit that belongs to others. Instead, we give. We give to those in need. We give preference to others. And Paul gives us the fundamental example of this in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Thieves transformed into givers. Now, that's good news for the thief, isn't it? Look, that's good news for you if you happen to be a thief. You may not break into people's homes. You may not pick people's pockets. But you may be a man who's taken from his own company, the company you work for. You may be a woman who is using using work time for personal issues. You may be a teenager who's plagiarizing research papers and cheating on tests. You may be a child who dips into mom's purse for money. The good news for you is that Jesus can save you. Jesus can change you. He can take you where you are at and make you something brand new. He can take you, a taker, and make you a giver. Because when Jesus saves us, that's what He does. He transforms us. He reorients our lives. And friends, I see this kind of generosity within our own congregation. I've seen it financially for 14, going on 15 years now. The way that God moves by grace in your hearts to meet one need or another to give in ways that are unexplainable apart from the grace of God. And right now in our church's life, I see it in your willingness to give people and to give resources to plant a new church. To sacrifice the comfort that we have right now in order to give to Bargersville to give to those in need of Christ, to give, Lord willing, a healthy church that takes root and lasts in a community that may not know that it needs a healthy church because none of us naturally think that. And friends, the fact of the matter is it will not be easy. There will be sadness when certain pews are empty. There will be sadness when a particular teacher or another is there instead of here. It will be sad when friends go. But I have no doubt 
that the joy of giving will win. Because when Christ saves us, He makes us givers. And God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity. Honesty, righteous anger, generosity. Fourth is encouragement. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Well, just stop right there. I mean, this is an area where we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should shine brightly, especially today. We live in a world full of corrupting talk, full of it in our workplaces, full of it in our homes, full of it on the news, from presidential candidates to shoppers and employees at the grocery store, even to some pulpits. Corrupting talk flows like a river of sewage through our society. Words that tear down, words that, that, that attack, words meant to crush, words that are like acid eating away at the dignity and worth of other human beings. But friends, it has no place among us. Not in our speech to the world, not in our speech about the world, and certainly not in our speech to and about one another. Our words must be used for God's glory, for the good of others, to actually bring beauty and joy to our relationships. Proverbs 25 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So what do we do rather than that? The end of verse 29, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We encourage. That's actually what building up is. Encouragement builds up. We say what's needed based on the situation, whether that is joyful affirmation or gentle confrontation, because both give grace. Giving grace doesn't mean leaving the other person feeling all happy. Grace, according to Titus 2, teaches us to renounce ungodliness and renounce unrighteousness and to live godly and upright lives. Sometimes we're encouraging the godly and the upright that we see, and sometimes we're saying, don't you see, friend, this unrighteousness, this wrong that needs to be made right? You see, just as generosity looks for financial need and meets it with money, encouragement looks for spiritual need and meets it with words. That's why, as part of our desire for our congregation, we want every member to be trained in biblical counseling to some degree, to be ready and willing and able to give grace by speaking God's Word to one another, ready to put apples of gold in settings of silver. Encouragement. Honesty, righteous anger, generosity, encouragement, and forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul's coming back to the subject of anger. Don't you find that interesting? Anytime there's something like this that's repeated so closely in the Bible, you need to perk up. Because listen to the repetition. First, Paul repeats himself about words, doesn't he? In verse 25, he says, speak truthful words. 
In verse 29, he says, speak gracious and helpful words. Then he doubles down on speaking about anger, so that in verse 26, he commends righteous anger. And now, in verse 31, he warns against sinful anger. Speech and anger are crucial issues in the life of the church. And Paul's not actually the only one who thinks this. Isn't it interesting that James writes something very similar, doesn't he? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he has a whole big section in chapter 3 about the dangers of the tongue. And then he has a whole big section about why do you quarrel and fight in chapter 4. You know what two of the leading causes of church problems are? Do you know if you did an autopsy of a dead church, what you might find was part of the cause? Sinful speech and sinful anger. Now, one of the distinctions in this mention of anger is that Paul's not talking about just anger at the presence of sin in general. We should be stirred by that. We should not be apathetic about that. He's talking about anger at sin against me. Paul is a realist. Don't you love that? Paul does not pretend like we can live in the church and nobody will ever hurt anybody else. Nobody will ever lose self-control. Nobody will ever speak a harsh word. Nobody will ever step out of bounds in our relationship with one another. Paul's a realist. He knows that's going to happen. But when it happens, we must respond to it biblically with mercy and forgiveness. This is part of the way. Of course we rebuke the one who sins. But what does Jesus say? If, you re, if, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he says he repents, not if you see the long-term fruit of his repentance, do you forgive. But if he says he repents seven times a day, you forgive seven times a day. Because it is not your concern nor my concern to punish the sinner. We ain't been given that authority. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Our call is to overcome evil with good. And here, that means mercy and forgiveness. You see, when we're sinned against, we're tempted to think that it's both natural and justifiable to express and experience the things that are listed in verse 31, don't we? We tend to think, oh, I can be bitter about this one. They've gone too far this time. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Sure, that's natural. Question is, are you and I called to live natural lives? Are we called to live just by the instinctive flesh? No. No. We're actually to develop different instincts by grace, through faith, learning new habits in response to these kinds of things. 
So we respond with kindness and compassion, ready to forgive as quickly and fully and freely as Jesus forgave us. Quick, full, free. Okay? That means what I don't do is, uh, okay, yeah, sure, I forgive you. Right? We think forgiveness is words. And because we know forgiveness is not words, we'll walk around, you know, Christians will walk around saying, I'm not sure that I am ready to forgive him or her yet. Look, I have great news for you. Jesus doesn't say, wait until you feel ready. Jesus says, look at the forgiveness that I have given you and forgive. And I will tell you, that is easier to amen on Sunday morning than it is to accomplish on Monday afternoon. But it is not impossible with the Spirit's help. Forgiveness. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's not the badness of the sin against me that determines whether I can or should forgive. It's the grace of Jesus toward me that determines it. His forgiveness lets us off the hook and reconciles us to God. Our sin, we sing it, don't we? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And we walk around and we rightly praise the Lord for that, for that. You know what one of the direct implications of that is our mercy toward others should be patterned on His mercy toward us. Now, think about all of this as a portrait of the church. Isn't it beautiful? Honesty, righteous anger, generosity, encouragement, forgiveness. Honesty between brothers and sisters, righteous anger that deals with sin, generosity toward those in financial need, encouragement toward those in spiritual need, and forgiveness when sin rears its ugly head against me. Now, living in these kinds of relationships can actually be summed up in three words. Three words that are found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love. Walk in love. Walk in love. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Our relationships must be transformed and marked by love. And, and, and really, we all want that kind of relationship, don't we? Don't you want these kinds of relationships? Don't, you don't want people... Look, right now, as it is, when you're not trapped in sin, don't you want friends who, when you're trapped in sin, aren't just going to sit there and just say, I wonder if he'll ever figure it out. I wonder if he'll ever figure it out. No, you want friends who will come to you in compassion and courage and help you. That's what you want. You don't want to drown in your own sin. You don't want to ruin your life and ruin your relationships and drag Jesus' name through the mud? You want people who come to you. We all want want to be part of a community that's generous, right? We all want to be part of a community that's encouraging. We all want to be part of a community where forgiveness is part of the rhythm of life. I mean, the south side of Indianapolis needs churches full of transformed people who live this way. It does not need one church. It needs every single church that proclaims the name of Jesus to live this way, including us. And Bargersville needs churches full of transformed people who live this way. 
So think about that list. Think about yourself. This list isn't for certain Christians or special Christians or missionaries or pastors or leaders. I mean, it is for them, but it is for every Christian. Where do you need to grow? If you had to pick one of those five where you need to grow, what would it be? What are two or three things that you need to do in order to pursue growth? What will you do this week to start growing? Well, those are the marks of transformed living. The other thing I want you to see far more briefly is the significance of transformed living, the significance of it. How important is it that we live as transformed people in the church, that we walk in love? Well, I mean, to state the obvious, these are not simply descriptions of a church. These are all commands. When you get down, when you get down into the heart of the language, every single one of them is a command. It's an imperative. It's a non-negotiable. But Paul goes beyond that. Paul underlines the significance of these commands with two other commands. The first one is in verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, disobedience in any of these areas pleases Satan, pleases the devil. But in particular, he connects it to verse 26, which is about righteous anger. So when it comes to righteous anger and dealing with sin in the church, delay or neglect is an open invitation to, for the devil to come in and to derail the ministry and to disrupt the fellowship. If we do not stay committed to dealing with sin among us, if we just say, you know what, we're grace people, we're not really that kind of people, we're grace people, or if we just say, you know what, this is not a big deal, he'll, he'll, you know, as long as nobody knows or whatever it is. Oh, dear friends, that is to prop the church door open with a sign out says that, that says, come on in, Satan. Have a seat in our pews. Take a seat at the decision-making table. Give him access to every nook and cranny in church life. Give no opportunity to the devil. How? Live transformed lives in the church. Second command is in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is the Spirit who marks you as belonging to God, who marks you safe on the last day. You know, there's all this, you know, uh, uh, all these marked safe things on Facebook, right? Marked safe from a tornado. Marked safe from being considered for Alabama's head football coach. You know, marked safe from all manner of things. But the Spirit of God marks you safe for the last day when you stand before God. He seals you. Why would you ever bring Him pain? Why would you ever cause Him sorrow? Just as surely as we may invite the devil's influence through disobedience, we can invite the Spirit just to take leave and let us alone through disobedience. Don't grieve the Spirit. In particular, Paul connects this to our words. Don't grieve the Spirit in the way that you speak with your corrupting talk. The Spirit gives us words of life in the Bible, so don't grieve Him by going around speaking lies, speaking words that hurt and kill relationships. The power of life and death is in the tongue. Don't grieve the Spirit. You see how serious this is? 
Our lives in the church will either please the devil or the Lord. That's how significant it is. If you've felt a particular weightiness as we walk through those five marks, that's why. Because this is no joke. These are not suggestions. This is the absolute bare minimum. We can live no other way. These aren't add-ons. These are marks of the operating system of our relationships in the church. We must live transformed lives in the church. So whether you are part of the small, small piece of our family that's going to Bargersville or whether you're in the part of the family that's going to remain, this is your call. Walk in love. Live transformed lives. And let me be clear, we don't walk in love so that God will accept us. We don't walk in love so God will love us. We don't walk in love so God will forgive us. We don't walk in love so that we can get into heaven. How do I know this? Well, I just read the Bible. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Now, all you grammarians, just look carefully at it. And if you're not a grammarian, look at it, all right? Walk in love, present tense, as Christ loved you and gave Himself for you, past tense. In other words, my present walking in love is based on Christ's prior walking in love. We love because He loved us. So if you're not a Christian this morning, how glad I am that you are here to hear this, to understand that there's not some secret way that we're peddling for you to get into the good graces of God. Not at all. So don't sit there thinking about the love you need to give to others and the way you need to change your life. What you need to think about is the love of Jesus that you need to receive so that He might change your life. You see, His walk in love sent Him to the cross where He generously gave His life for our forgiveness that we might escape God's righteous anger toward our sin. And He calls us, that He says to us, if we will come to Him, believe in Him, trust in Him, He will take us in and He will never cast us out. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. And His Spirit will dwell in you. And His Spirit will come alongside you and encourage your soul all the way through life. He is the comforter. He is the counselor who will come and keep taking you to the Word of God. He will keep reiterating His gracious words of life in you. And when Jesus calls us to Him and when Jesus promises us all, all these things, He is honest. He's honest about sin and its consequences. And he's honest about the fullness and freeness of his forgiveness. Are you trusting in Jesus?
Are you trying to love other people so well that God can't help but love you? Are you trying to work your way into God's good graces? Friend, it is a spiritual treadmill. You will work and 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 not go anywhere. But if you turn to him and confess that you are weak and wounded, sick and poor and sore, he stands ready to save you. You see, honesty, righteous anger, generosity, encouragement, and forgiveness are all found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when Paul tells us to live transformed lives in the church, he's not giving us some random list of moral imperatives, just a to-do list. He's saying, be like Jesus. God's great purpose for every one of us is to be like Jesus, to be conformed to His image. So as we relate to one another in the church, as we seek to walk in love, what are we seeking to do? Be like Jesus. Live transformed lives in the church. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we... We hear these things, we see this list, and we know, we know how we fail in them, how we fall. We know that we are weak and wounded and sick and sore, and we are so thankful for our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And for His salvation. Thank you that he has spoken truth to us and that he has forgiven us and freed us from God's righteous anger through the generous giving of his life on the cross. Help us, by your grace, to be like him and to walk in love. We pray in his name. Amen.